What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. My name is Andrew Pish, and you know us. This is where we dig deep on improv, creativity, and art. This is another episode in our Artist's Brain series where we interview improvisers and other artists about their creative process. Our guest today had an enormous impact on my life. And first, let me set the stage a little bit. In 2009, I was an engineering student in my first engineering internship at a naval research laboratory in Austin, Texas. My desk was directly across the hall from a door that had a sign that said top secret in big bold letters. And it also had a keypad with a code to get in. Scientists and engineers would quietly key in the code and quickly get in and shut the door before I could lay my eyes on any sweet, dark naval secrets. I know they had them. Anyways, this is the place where I began to have doubts that engineering was the right career path for me. And this is when at that exact moment, while I was checking my Gmail, I saw an ad for improv classes at the Hideout Theater. This was the start of a journey that forever changed my life. Enter our guest, Roy Yannick, one of the owners of the Hideout Theater and a member of the 16-year-old and internationally renowned improvised theater company Parallelogramophonograph, or PGRAPH for short. Roy and PGRAPH were major influences on the narrative improv scene in Austin, Texas when I started improvising, and he was my first improv team's coach. As you'll hear, Roy is a complete delight, positive and warm and insightful, and that's the introduction to improv that hooked me for life. We talked about the realities of being an improv theater owner, his narrative improv influences and lessons we can all take from narrative improv, how virtual improv can connect us with the international improv community, which has a lot we could learn from. And also his book on narrative improv that he wrote with PGRAPH called Do It Now, Essays on Narrative Improv. I am so happy to introduce you to one of my first improv mentors, Roy Yannick. You're listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. Thanks for being here, Roy. It's such a joy to speak to you. I know. Getting your message was really a surprise and a delight. I love you, Pish, even though I don't often talk to you or even really know what you're up to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't really kept in touch, but I i mean, I'm completely honest when I say that you are one of the most influential people on in my life, <laughs> like ever. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at sincerity. It's just hard to take something said that way, you know? No, no, no. But I was, you know, I was an engineer. I was at my first internship when I saw a Gmail, an ad in Gmail back <laughs> when they were doing that for the Hideout Theater. And I was like, oh, I think that would be fun. They were doing that. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I worked at IBM for 11 years before I became an owner of the Hideout Theater. So yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah. What's the story there? Yeah, when I, <laughs> I'll go way too far back. How about we start there? Fantastic. Uh, At the very beginning when yeah, you were born. <laughs> when I decided to go to college, I was basically 50-50 on whether to be an uh, English major or a uh, computer science major. And this was in 95. So it wasn't abundantly clear the buckets of money that could be had going into tech. You know, <laughs> the, the bubble hadn't started yet. So it really was just like kind of a coin flip. But I decided to go into computer science. I planned to just stay in academia 
afterwards because I had no interest in being part of the business world. And I was in, I was at the University of Alabama with a few of my Texas friends. We all went there. I went to exactly one job fair in 1999 because they were like, we're going to Atlanta. You want to come along? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll come along. And at the job fair, I talked to no one except they were like, there's this one guy from IBM you should talk to because he's flying people to Texas to do interviews in Austin. And I was like, all right, I'll talk to this one guy. And then like, they they offered me some amount of money that wasn't even good for the time, but blew my college <laughs> student mind. And I changed my life plan in that moment and decided to get my master's degree and work at IBM in Austin. And I did, did both of those things. So I have a master's degree in computer science. I worked at IBM for 11 years, wow. which was six years too long. And I also had promised myself that I would never work there more than 10 years. And I worked there 11 years. But luckily for me, they laid me off. And uh, here I am today. Wow. <laughs> That's my brief. Or oh, and how I got into improv was my good friend, Kareem Badra, who's now one of the co-owners of the Hideout. He basically just told me one day, he saw the swarm in New York when he was on vacation there at UCB. He said the lights came up on that show and he said, I have to do this. And so when he got back to Austin, he told me, hey, we're taking an improv class. <laughs> and I was like, you know, great, what's improv? And we took it and we took it at the hideout, which we now own. And we never looked back, really. So you took a level one improv class and then you decided to become owners right afterwards? Yeah, basically. No, uh, but it was <laughs> it was shockingly quick. That was like 2005. I think we took our first class and we became owners in April of 2009. Wow, that's amazing. As far as improv careers go, that was a pretty fast trajectory, but it was because we loved it so much. Community was really important to us and it was the center of my life and the the owner and founder of the theater, you know, had other things going on in his life and he wasn't going to renew the lease at the 10 year mark. And so me and Jessica Arjay and uh, Kareem Badra, we were all students and performers there and we were like, someone's got to save the theater. So we saved it and did had no idea what running a theater meant and what it would do to us. Yeah, so here we are. That's fantastic. It, that's the most improv thing ever. Let's just say yes, and then we'll figure it out as we go. Yeah, probably a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, is there anything, would you have warned you, like, hey, this is going to be hard, or are you kind of glad you didn't know? Man, I don't, uh, how, I don't know how emotionally resonant we should get at this point in the podcast, but yeah, <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff I would warn myself about. The first thing I would warn myself is that if you're part of a community because you value friendships and close connection with people, the longer you're an owner and an authority figure, the more distance you're going to put between yourself and the community. And, you know, probably for good, very valid reasons. But my entire life, I've been part of a very large group of friends in various circles. In college, I was really into college radio, and that was basically like my home base. And as a kid, I had an open window policy and my friends could just come over and unlock my window and pile in and we would go into the garage and we'd make up songs on a beat up old guitar, you know. And so the improv community for a long time felt that same, like a logical continuation of that thing in my life. And it took me, I mean, I've been an owner for over 10 years now, 12 years and it took me only a couple of years ago before I realized that that wasn't the case anymore. It snuck up on me. The fact that like I had been putting distance between myself and so many people like I love 
hundreds of people in the Austin improv scene, but they're not my close friends. You know what I mean? Not in the way that those other social circles were. So that's what I would warn myself about. And I'd be like, get another hobby. <laughs> get another hobby right now and make close friends in that hobby where there's not a weird conflict of interest or power dynamic, you know? Absolutely. That's so hard. That's such a hard thing about being a leader and, and wanting to be a leader. But then if that is your community of close friends, I can't imagine. That just sounds really difficult. And, you know, that's where a lot of theaters get into trouble because they don't have they don't have those boundaries. And I think before I even knew the language about boundaries, I was probably in the most unhealthy way putting those walls up just by not engaging as much as other people do with each other. Hmm. Anyway, that's not that's not where (laughs) that's not where that question should have led. No, it's it's really um, interesting and. This is a safe space. We're, yeah. we're all friends yeah. here. No, and it, it actually resonated so much and is something I, I would never have thought of running an improv theater. And it, it really rang true. It's totally true for me, at least. It's not to say I haven't definitely made extremely close friends in the improv community, but like learning to kind of see that difference and then to kind of learn over time that not only is that difference there, but it actually serves a purpose. Yeah. That the more you can be your role and only your role the healthier like your theater is probably not that you're not friendly with people not that you wouldn't you know go to bat for them you don't want to make their lives miserable or anything like that but you know there's a there's a separation the other thing i would tell my early self is a lesson that we as a management team learned i don't know like five years ago we we actually we have a yearly retreat where we get together and we talk about like our goals and what we've learned and like where the theater's going and stuff like that one of the things we came up with one year is the idea that you can't delegate enthusiasm. Whoa. And that was uh, a big lesson for us. Because sometimes it would be like, we want to do this fest. We do this festival every year and we would burn out on it as owners. And we'd be like, okay, we'll just find someone who is up and coming and energetic and we'll let them be the producer of the festival and we'll take a step back. That's a good thing to do is to kind of delegate responsibilities so you don't burn out. But if we are checked out, it infests the whole process. And so now if we're not jazzed about something, it might be a sign that it needs to go on pause for a year or or be revisited or retired or rethunk. Uh, so yeah, that's the other thing I would tell myself. You can't delegate enthusiasm. I love that. Man, yeah, that's so true. That's huge. So when you come into that kind of a circumstance with these people that are on your team, it feels like it's just like a real intuitive signpost where you're like, something yeah. needs to change. Yeah, and I'm not saying we always will change it, but at least now we have the awareness that something is happening and we're not just like confused as to why this thing isn't as successful as it used to be. Sometimes you don't have a good answer or a good replacement. And so you you forge on as best you can. That kind of trickles down to when I'm putting together like show schedule and stuff like that. My number one requirement above anything else, including the like experience of the director, is that First of all, the person coming to me with the show idea is excited about the idea. And if they're not excited about the idea, it doesn't happen. And it seems weird to say, but like we were in positions not so much anymore uh, because I feel like our our bench is deeper in terms of like talent and people who really want to and have the skill to put up a show. But for sometimes we'd have a small pool of people that we trusted and they and someone would come to us and say like, yeah, I guess I could put up an improvised Shakespeare show. 
you know, <laughs> like, and I'm like, if you're not excited about improvising Shakespeare, this is going to be a slog for everyone. But so there's a difference between them being excited about putting that specific show up or and being excited about just like being in charge of a show, you know, and they need to they need to be excited about both of those things. That is such good advice. I'm finding this very relatable because I've been making short films lately and I realized that like if I was like trying to find an editor or a DP or something mm. and they weren't immediately like, oh, I like this script, like this is what I would do. I kind of like this and and they're into it. I'm like, it doesn't matter like your rate. It doesn't matter your talent. If you don't want to do it, I don't want to yeah. do it with you. It's like, I can't <laughs> rally you. I'm going to write that down and put it on a <laughs> post-it note because I'm like, oh, oh. that's everything <laughs> to me right now. Yeah. Oh, that's so that's so interesting to hear. Yeah, I haven't worked on films at all, but I could see how it could connect. So Roy, when you were getting started, because the difference between the Austin improv community and the Los Angeles improv community that I walked into was enormous. Yeah. And the narrative improv that I had all of a sudden become so comfortable with was almost, I mean, it's found at the improv theater, but that's not the mm -hmm. community that I fell into. And so I'm very interested in to hear like when you started, was narrative improv a thing? Like who were your improv mentors and favorite teams to watch? The answer is it was kind of a thing. The hideout schedule wasn't as organized as it is now, but one thing that the hideout would do on a very, very regular basis is a show called Start Trekkin, which is improvised original series Trek, not Shatner and Nimoy. And it wasn't the Enterprise. It was another ship in the universe at the same time. So the, the captain and all those characters were made up every single night that the show happened. But they did that show a lot. And so when I first started doing improv at the hideout, that was my first role model for like narrative, like genre costumed, tech-arranged uh, improv. And it turns out they got that exact format and idea from uh, BATS in San Francisco, uh, Bay Area Theater Sports at the time, a guy who's a fantastic improviser and amazing razor of octopi. Uh, his name's Rich, Ro Rich Ross. He came, to, he came down and taught them that workshop, and then they, they started doing the show. So that was a big influence for me and all of us. There's another group called the Available Cupholders, slash the well-hung jury one group kind of melded into the other one they were doing a ton of shows and that was the kind of like classic model these were high school buds who formed an improv troupe in high school and then kept performing together so their chemistry and their connection and their playfulness is just off the charts and they're all very talented and funny as well they were doing narrative pretty much consistently and so i kind of had these two models held before me as i was a student and soaking in everything which was one, this like very committed genre work where we're trying to be as true to the uh, source material as possible. And then uh, on the flip side, this group that would basically like do the wildest stories and like sometimes the connection between the performers was more important than the scene work happening. And I love both angles of that. And I think part of that computer science brain of mine was already like trying to draw these charts in my head. On this axis, we have available cup holders and over here we've got improvised star trek you know and where can i where do i want to fall in that uh in that kind of line graph and then also impro theater out of la i saw them very early on they blew my mind 
it's kind of tangentially related a group called three for all which uh, steven kieran tim Orr, and rafe chase are a part of and, and steven kieran's a part of impro theater they came down and taught a narrative intensive early on in my career and i've been fans of them for the entire time i was in improv I like thinking about it on a graph yeah. and where you want to fall because there are so many, I'm, I imagine, I haven't done a lot of narrative improv, but I imagine there's a lot of overlap, but then also new skills that are separate that you need to really cultivate. If I could go back in time, once I finished iOS's I feel like I would have jumped over to improv because I now am very interested in it. And it's like, it feels like mm. it's like too late. <laughs> it's too late because of COVID. <laughs> and I don't know. I just, do you know the average age of their cast? I don't think it's too late for you. Okay. Thank you. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel really good. Cause I'm like, all right, one day, one day, one day. That's very true. Uh, sorry. Maddie Goff is very young. She balances out the cast. At the end. <laughs> very nice. Exactly. Very nice. <laughs> I think Anatasha's kind of getting to something. I think in LA and other improv communities, narrative improv can be looked down upon mm. as like this genre prop yeah and people see it and they think it's gimmicky yeah without really knowing what it is or having seen it done well yeah were you aware of that getting started or did y'all just kind of launch in because what you saw was really good yeah i don't know if i was aware of it immediately but i was such a fan i was so in love with improv after a very short time that i did as much research as I could, you know, and I, I don't think it was too long after my four person group parallelogram and phonograph got started that we went to the Chicago Improv Fest. And so we're kind of exposed to that attitude <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and I have so many thoughts on this and I, and I will try to be as positive about it as possible. And I don't really even know where to jump in. But yeah, I was aware of that attitude. And it always struck me as funny because you have like, Improvised Shakespeare Company, you know, at I.O. And they're like tearing it up like what, two nights a week? And it's like the mo one of the most popular shows. And it's like, oh, but the core philosophy is that like, don't do narrative, don't, never focus on plot, only focus on characters and their wants. These guys are doing narrative work and it's hugely popular. And I remember there was a improvised Jane Austen group. Almost any musical uh, group that I saw that was kind of in that Chicago or New York tradition, they were almost always improvising narratives when they did a musical. I don't know why, it just was. And then when I finally went to Chicago and I saw like five shows at IO, every single Herald I saw, the beats followed a narrative path. You know what I mean? I don't think they were supposed <laughs> yeah. to. I think it was they should have been thematically following it or uh, repeat or taking the patterns and like extrapolating them in the new situations. But it just reiterated in my brain that like our basic human nature is to tell stories. And you ha and if you don't want to do that, it's a struggle and you kind of fight against it. And I'm not saying that like people should only do narrative. God, no. Uh, that shouldn't be the case. <laughs> but don't treat storytelling like a dirty word if it's our basic instinct to improvise and tell stories. I feel like that attitude did a disservice to me because I was like, oh, okay, I guess mm -hmm. this is where I'm learning. So that's, and I guess, not what we're doing or whatever. And now I'm like, it's the only way to sell a show. You fucking <laughs> stupid. Like, you want people to come see your show? Like, tell a story. And now I'm like, mm -hmm. oh. What up? You know, I just wish that. And Natasha, I'd that is such a good point. Actually, that idea of like it's the only way to sell a sh sell a show 
It sounds cynical, but I'll I'll explain why it's not. But no, <laughs> it's a good it's a good <laughs> thing. Yeah. It's like I see improvised Shakespeare, and it's like it's structured. It's the reason why their shows are so successful. It's the reason why mm. they can have a rotating cast. Everything about it's great. Also, do they have women in their cast yet? Um, no. But may I suggest to the universe and Blaine, um, just throw Jet and Holly in there. You already love them, Blaine. If you're listening. Also, I would play with them. Oh, my God. That would be great. 100%. Women. 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 Let's all do it. Women. (laughs) Blaine's great, and I've seen Improvised Shakespeare like several times, but like it was weird 10 years ago when they didn't have women, and now it's unexcusable. Yeah. Inexcusable? I don't know. I should have said the right word if I was trying to make a (laughs) powerful point. That's a computer (laughs) science major for you. (laughs) When we first took over the hideout, we had a arts editor from uh, a local alternative newspaper sit down with uh, the management team and just talk to us about like how to get more coverage for improv. Uh, I don't know what it's like in L.A., but it was very hard to get reviews of shows or even like anything beyond just a normal like listing. And he was basically like, your show cannot just be people are improvising stuff and they're funny even for the Austin scene back then which exploded after that there was already too much for them to make a big deal out of a show like that your show needs to have some sort of thing that makes it really unique and is understandable to the audience and we really took that to heart and so that Star Trekking was really like it became sort of this template everyone in the show was excited to improvise Star Trek if they hadn't been a fan before they went off and did their research and got excited about it and so we we were like let's put up shows that one we're really excited to do that explore this idea of narrative that are easily understandable by the audience and will be a good time we just started launching a new show every two months and that's been the model we followed for the last 10 years. It's not always narrative. It's not always genre, but seven times out of 10, it is. Okay, guys, we should move to Austin. And here's why. (laughs) Because (laughs) I actually, okay, to keep it short, I feel that the way that we were trained, I really love because I feel like our first coach was like, if you can't do a scene, you can't do a sequence. And if you can't do a sequence, you can't do a show. So let's just focus on this first, Mm -hmm. first. And don't worry about the rest. Like, we're just going to focus on being with each other. And I think starting small like that was really good for me and what I needed. And I still focus on that. But anytime Storm Chaser has put a conceit on a show, whether it was because of a cage match where we were were doing, where they were like, you have to do a high school narrative or whatever, it's gone from being good to like blowing my my mind and me being like we can do this this is blowing my mind you know so we should move to austin and that's my pitch so <laughs> uh, let me uh i just want to sort of offer some balance to this viewpoint because i'll own and i've talked about this before i was that guy that was like ah narrative eh, it's not really my thing not that i ever had any problem with it but i it, it didn't excite me mm-hmm. in the way that maybe some other improv does and i there's still part of me that's resistant to the idea that it's the only way to sell a show. I don't know <laughs> if I can get behind, I don't know if I can get behind that, but I think what we're talking about and what I would pitch to improvisers who don't want to do genre is is you can't just show up at the theater and dick around on stage for 25 minutes and expect people to be excited about that. Your improv show needs a production, you have to make choices. It needs a thing that you can 
tell people this is what we do. We we just did an interview uh, with Brian James O'Connell. Yeah, he went off on this too. That was like improv. You got to make choices. So I, I'm not sure that the answer is like you have to do narrative or you need a something as defined as improvised Shakespeare, mm-hmm. but the improv does need to be elevated and produced in a way that you can tell people this is what we do. Yeah. Because like Cook County or The Reckoning, they don't do narrative improv necessarily, Mm -hmm. but you know what they do and you know what to expect when you go to their shows and they always have full houses. Yeah. I don't know. I ran it on for too long. Does (laughs) any of that make any sense at all? It it makes total (laughs) sense. And at the core of my and the theater's like thinking is that we would never, ever want to tell someone this is the way to do improv or even this is the way that the only way you can sell a show. If anyone's ever telling you like, don't do that or this is the way, this is the only way or the best way to do comedy or improv, like run away. <laughs> That's the worst. This is just the, this is the lens and the filter to the work that we find exciting. And so that's been our focus. But we do we do long form that's not narrative at the hideout. We do narrative, we do games, we do it all. And the people that are excited about it are the drivers behind that. And my most successful show is not a narrative show. It's called Austin Secrets. And it's it takes like post-secret style secrets as inspiration for scene work. And that's the pitch to the public. And that's what the show is. I think that's great because that's, um, kind of jumping on what Travis, Travis said, it's not that it has to be narrative or genre, but having a conceit that you can mm-hmm. say in one sentence what it is, I think is really important if you want to sell it to somebody who has never seen it. I think the reason that I feel like it's such a juicy topic to talk about right now is because we're seeing theaters across the country you know, go under yeah. and improvisers have been wondering for a long time in a lot of different cities, how do we get people to our shows? I think there's a lot of people who don't have a lot of answers right now. So we're all kind of looking for that. I know that the boys want to ask you about the book and a few other things. But before we move on, can I ask one more thing about narrative improv? Because it, it interests me. <laughs> I'll talk about narrative for okay. hours. Okay, so good, good, good. Let's, keep, let's keep talking. So as you said, that graph about like where you want to fall on it, what are the skills that you feel like overlap from non narrative improv mm-hmm. to narrative improv and what doesn't overlap that like if I hadn't done it I should look to work on oh man that's a great question there's actually a third there were three dimensions to that graph there's a third group called the Frank Mills out of Cold Town Theater which was more Chicago slash UCB focused and still is they were a fantastic group very much in that Chicago uh, tradition of like emotionally grounded relationship based scenes they were also a huge inspiration for me that connection of emotion and connection between characters and relationships, that skill applies across the board, regardless of what show you're doing. Even the most ridiculous genre show has super strong relationships. Like my group, and I'll start calling us P-Graph because our name's too long, Parallel Gramophonograph. Our most successful show early on for as far as festivals were concerned, and the reason we were in Chicago for that festival was an improvised French farce and those characters, if you think of like Moliere or Fado, they're completely over the top, wealthy buffoons who like literally fall over themselves, engage in wordplay and misunderstand each other. But the relationships and those um, 
their emotional wants and needs are just as strong as anything else. It's just the lens you see it through is this buffoonish, like clown-like society, but they care deeply about what other characters think about them. And they care deeply about like forging a loving relationship with someone. That intersection will always be true. In terms of like things you might want to focus on if you haven't done narrative before, I'll try to I'll try to go for extreme examples because I think that some stuff does apply. But one thing that I really like personally about doing narrative is giving myself the freedom to improvise the story as well as my characters. And I think part of this kind of came out of a reaction to seeing people that were doing narrative who came from schools that, you know, downplay narrative. The kind of hand wavy thing you often hear is just play your character's wants and needs really strongly and the plot will take care of itself. But that creates a very specific type of story where all the characters have equal weight and equal importance. And it can actually be very freeing to know Anatasha is playing the main character and everyone else is disposable. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) we're going to see your journey through life and I'm on the side going like, oh, it'd be great if the bus driver when she gets onto this bus is just a complete asshole, you know? And I'll, I'll come on as the bus driver and be a complete asshole and make your life more miserable and so, like, put an obstacle in your way. And, and was I playing that bus driver's, like, wants and needs to, you know, like, a little bit, but mostly I was just trying to be a thorn in your side. Mm. And then I feel comfortable just being like, and that's what the bus driver did in this story And we never see him again. You know what I mean? As opposed to being like two scenes later, let's check back in with that bus driver. (laughs) (laughs) I have to ask a specific question to this because in my years of doing narrative improv with the show that I had produced in LA, Doctor Mm -hmm. Who Live. That was the first thing. You you got to LA and you produced that show within like a week or something, right? Yeah, it was insane because I was, so I was interning at the Hideout Theater and there was this toilet that overflowed in the back, and it was a horrific mess. Oh, you wait. You mean you mean IO, right? Did you say hideout? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So please don't interning. Is- please don't besmirch my theater on. <laughs> so the hideout theater has these toilets that overflow all the time. It's disgusting. No, IO West was disgusting, and everyone knows it. <laughs> We were looking to get out of that location for years and we never did. But anyways, so this toilet overflowed and I think I ingratiated myself with the artistic director at the time. I friended him on Facebook and he saw, because the show that I'd just done before moving out was The Professor, which was improvised Doctor Who. So he was like, would you want to do that show out here? And I was like, uh, okay. And I didn't know anybody. And he was like, I'll get a team together. I'll send out some emails. And then all of a sudden it put me into the community a lot quicker than Mm -hmm. I would have been otherwise, which was really nice. So one of the things I found in my years doing that show was that I started to really enjoy playing those side characters that were not the protagonists. And it had trouble of having so much fun doing Mm -hmm. that, that all of a sudden the side character becomes like a big feature in the story that I didn't intend them. That is a sign of a few things. And this is kind of, this is might be seen as bragging on my part, but it's not because I've been in that position a ton and it can be hugely frustrating or but also really <laughs> funny at the same time. Uh, but yeah. it's a sign, Andrew, that you're charming and magnetic and watchable. Uh, and so you playing those side characters, people are like, I want to know more. <laughs> there was one show I did, which was an improvised Conan the Barbarian show. We don't often do this, but in this show, we knew who like the main character was like ahead of time. 
And, you know, and I just kind of knew that I, I wanted to play bit parts. And I literally was part of an opening montage where I played like a fishmonger and I was selling fish. And I don't know how the <laughs> fuck it happened, but like the, the like they glommed onto the fucking fishmonger and I was trying to get extricate myself from the scene because I was like, I don't want to steal focus. And then I wind up making a bit walk on, on later on into like the king of this kingdom is like making a proclamation. And I just walked by and they grabbed me. And it got to the point where I was like, please, like just saying everything I could to insult the king so that he would push me off this ledge. Yep. And like instead, he's like, "You're the perfect man to execute this job for me." And I'm like, "I'm the I'm a fishmonger from the montage." It's so real. I would just be like, try to find a way to get killed or to kill myself. I'd be like, "I'm jumping off this cliff." Yeah, that was me. But it is really fun to play those side characters, and that's the thing about narrative. I think if you haven't done a lot of it, you might feel that there's kind of this inherent unfairness. That you have like the main character or main characters and everyone else is kind of subservient to them. But oftentimes the real joy is playing those side characters and knowing you're disposable. It's also way easier for you to affect the story and the plot as a side character. Rich Ross, who I mentioned earlier, taught us for Star Trek, but it applies generally to narrative. The person improvising the main character, their job is not to make the story happen. Their job is to make strong choices and to talk about their feelings. Mm. And it's everyone else in the cast's job to present them with those choices and to basically do the heavy lifting of the story. So people, there'll often be this game of table tennis at the beginning of a show, especially with greener groups, where they're like, I don't want to be the main character because that's a lot of pressure. But if you're doing it right, the pressure's actually kind of off on you as the main character. I love that. So they're living their life and you get to throw th- like obstacles in their ways and trials. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really cool. Reminds me of one of my favorite lines from the book. It's very simple, but it's like, if something is interesting or fun, do it more. Oh, that's like so good. That's just such simple, great improv advice. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the name of the book. So we obviously mean it. So let's, yeah. uh, let's move to Pete Graff and talking about the book because I, I loved the book. It reminded me of my roots. With y'all at the Hideout Theater, I remembered a weekend workshop we did with P. Graf. Mm. It was all covering your take on narrative improv. And I think the book opens up in this really beautiful way with this quote that says, we believe that narrative is instinctual and that the urge to tell stories exists within each of us and is a core part of human life. And I feel like that just takes the weight off because you're like, oh, this is just like a human thing it's not this huge scary no big monster we have to tackle no we don't get into joseph campbell and the hero's journey in any detailed way when we do shows but the 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 key takeaway from that whole thing for me was that he was not trying to say like this is how you should tell stories he's like i've analyzed cultures over thousands of years across the world and this is how stories are told you know what i mean that's kind of been our take on it is like just the trust that we're wired for this stuff culturally and instinctually and that it's not a skill you have to like drill down in and learn like okay in the second scene this should happen and the third scene this should happen if we're really connected and we're being truthful then we will all know what happens next kind of at the same time or at least you know kind of vaguely (laughs) Or at least since something bad needs to happen here or something good needs to happen here or we need a pause, 
We need a goof off scene because things have been too serious. So how do you get from starting an improv group in 2005 Mm -hmm. to making it all the way to 2021? You've released a book last year. You have become leaders in the community and one of the, I think, the strongest voices for narrative improv. Traveled the world, teaching workshops. Yeah, I don't know how to jump into this. I have so many questions yeah. about your whole journey there. We didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I will take that back. We we absolutely meant to do all those things. We did. Wow. We made a list. This is This is kind of weird, but we started out as six people. We're four people now. We never added anyone, but we've done over... Probably over 750 shows now as an ensemble. We got to the four of us around show 50. So that's kind of how stable our group has been. One of the other members who's no longer with the group, his name is uh, Wesley Bain. I love him and I'm just going to shout him out now. He was so goal-oriented when we started. I think his thumbprint was on the troop at the very beginning of like, we're going to do this. We're going to take over the world. We're going to tour. We're going to come up with our own formats. And I don't know that the rest of us necessarily would have been that explicit about it. So even though he left very early on, it put that stamp on the group. Uh, We made this list and that we found a few years later into our journey. And it was like, go to some festivals, teach workshops internationally, come up with these new formats, you know, sell out a show, have a weekly show. And like, we were like, we have done everything on this list that we forgot we made. You know? <laughs> but I will say, uh, and this might be like a slight tangent, as a group, figure out what your goals are. Have a plan that is something beyond we just want to have fun doing improv together. I haven't done a ton of coaching over the years, but I've done a fair share. And the most frustrating thing is when I come into a group to work with them and they actually have no idea what they want to do beyond doing improv. You know what I mean? And I almost feel like I can't help them at that point because I can give them my opinion on what I think is working scene wise or be like, here's a structure that worked for us. But if I don't know, kind of know what direction they're hoping to go in, then it's hard to steer them in a direction. And we knew very early on that we wanted to do narrative because we had grown up over the past year seeing available cup holders, seeing in pro theater and seeing Star Trek. And, and we were like, we want to do more of that. Andy Crouch, who is our education director at the hideout, predated us as owners at the hideout. When we were first taking classes there, he was the hideout's sole employee. So he was not only the education director, but he was also effectively the artistic director and the guy who taught all the classes and, and cleaned up at the end. It was a weird time. He told us repeatedly I don't think you should do narrative yet. He's like, do short form for two years and then circle back on it. And we were like, absolutely not. We just did a bunch of really bad shows for a while and got better at it. But despite having those influences, there was no one to tell us how to do it properly. There was someone to tell us how to improvise Star Trek properly, <laughs> you know, but that was about the extent of the the lessons we got early on. So our first formats were, our very first narrative format was just us doing, uh, we called it Six Degrees, but it's a LaRonde. The exact same format comes out of two different improv origins. We did that to start off our narrative. So, you know, A and B do a scene, B and C do a scene, C and D do a scene, D and E do a scene. And then when we had two other members, the other letters as well. That was a terrible way to start a narrative. We didn't know. 
<laughs> because we were doing the same thing I talked about earlier where we were giving each of the characters equal weight. Mm. It became a very specific type of narrative, which was an ensemble-driven narrative where we check in with each of the characters. And then it all built out from there. We realized early on that we wanted to try our hands at some styles, so we did that improvised French farce, and that really just took off for us. We did a local Fringe festival, and we got Best of Fest with uh, and we were like super surprised because they actually kind of looked down upon improv at that festival, uh, you know, but we were we were we were giving them costumes and makeup and funny voices and we were falling down a lot. <laughs> and we started getting into festivals with that format because they would see our tape and we didn't look like other improv groups that they were seeing. We had a very specific style and focus and uh, they were like, good, we'll add some variety into the festival. And so that opened up the doors to our travel. And then every time we traveled anywhere we'd meet one person who was like, hey, you should come to X. And it was going to Chicago. We, we actually didn't connect with many Chicago people there because the festival was so huge. Mm. There was literally a show going on at the same time our show was going on that we would have rather been at. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think it may have been the doubtful guest, Todd Stashwick and, and company. Yeah. But we did meet a guy who was like, hey, you should come to Montreal. And that opened up the floodgates on like, years of doing shows in Canada. And it was literally because we went to Chicago and talked to a guy from Montreal at an after party. <laughs> it all expanded from there. Finding our aesthetic and our ethos as we did these different shows. Yeah, I have a billion other thoughts about all that, but I'll, I'll finish this sentence. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by RY Originals, whole plant, vegan CBD vitamins that are full of healthy, purposeful vitamins, minerals, and herbs. Hemp is more nutrient-dense than broccoli and berries. It's a superfood. For some reason, every other CBD product extracts and isolates the CBD from the plant, leaving all the nutrients behind. But RY says, not today, nutrients. You're coming with us. By lightly baking the hemp powder and mixing it in with other natural vitamins and minerals, RY creates a perfectly healthy and perfectly balanced experience. So, not only do they make you feel good, they are also really good for you. They're double lab tested and activated without extraction, which makes them truly original. RY Originals has crafted four unique blends. They've got Better Mood, Pain Lift, Sleep Tight, and Original Blend, all of which are available right now at shop.ryoriginals.com. That's S-H-O-P dot R-Y-O-R-I-G-I-N-A-L-S dot com. So check them out today, and don't forget to use discount code STORMCHASER at the checkout to get 420 off every bottle. R-Y Originals. Eat your greens. I was really inspired at the beginning of the book. You talk about how in your early days, you had a lot of people trying to tell you how not to do it or the right way. Mm -hmm. and, and this isn't going to work. And y'all just did it anyway. And I think that that's really inspiring. Part of the advantage we had was the Austin improv scene, especially at the time, which it was just like very fertile ground. And the scene was expanding rapidly, but still not big it just you could tell something was happening but you know maybe there were 40 active improvisers and there was one theater literally the fact that we had energy and enthusiasm and focus and we were hungry for stage time meant that we could get it and so we would get scheduled for one show a month at the hideout but 
groups would drop out last minute and we would always snatch them up. We did a lot more shows than we than we would have done otherwise if we weren't willing to say like, we'll do it, we'll do it, <laughs> put us in. And we got very excited. And then we really lucked out that we were good friends with Cold Town, who uh, came from New Orleans, moved to Austin, did a bunch of shows at the hideout, and then formed their own theater a couple of years down the road. It was a similar thing, like the hideout was starting to fill up, but they had a new theater and needed experienced troops that wanted stage time. And we were like, we'll do it. And they gave us every like every Saturday or every Thursday for a month. And then at the end of the month, they were like, you want to keep doing it? And we were like, yes. And then we had a weekly show for three and a half years, you know. My follow up to that and all the amazing things y'all have done as a team. And maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but like what's left on the P-Graph bucket list? Oh, man, that's such a good question. And it's so hard to answer right yeah. now. Because <laughs> like a year ago, almost like to the day, we dove head first into uh, virtual shows. Thanks to Casey Beeler in our group. She was really like, we need to do this now. The hideout needs to do this now. And PGRAPH is well equipped to do it. We learned on our feet. And in the heady days of April uh, 2021, we were doing five shows a week virtually while other people were still like trying to decide whether it was worth the effort or not. And my God, we learned so much, but like, it's been a long year, <laughs> y'all. And our energy is flagging. I'm sure you're all, you're feeling it too. And like, there's also a little bit of senioritis now that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we've kept up that weekly practice of doing a show now every Saturday, but it was like Monday, Thursday, Saturday, two shows on Sunday. Couldn't tell you why, except we felt we had to do something. You know what I mean? But where we go from here, I think we're just, we're just fucking eager to be in person again. And we normally go to like two or three festivals a year. And usually two of those are international. We have a long overdue like Scandinavian tour in our mind. We normally go to London like every other year, but now it's been like four years. And so we're, we want to go back to fucking London. Yeah, so more more of what we were doing. I see a lot of travel in our future and I see exploding onto the stage in our future. We also talked, we, we actually talked about this two days ago, I think, how we've started to slowly move, not away from, but we're less interested right now in making up a new like genre show and digging and digging more into like, like modern American theater type one act type shows, which is its own genre, of course, but maybe a little more open-ended and a little more languid in terms of plot, like deep character exploration. So, yeah. I want to ask you about your insights from Zoom Improv for a little bit, because we've also been doing weekly shows during part, bi-weekly during other. What have you learned? Like if someone was still dragging their feet on this thing, do you think it has a shelf life mm -hmm. outside of the pandemic? And if they are interested in doing it, maybe what are your insights? I really hope it has a shelf life beyond the pandemic. And I, and, I, and I think I know it does because what the beautiful thing that's happened in the past year is the international connections have like really dug deep. And like we do shows now, well, not we, but like we, the collective improv, we we're doing shows with people from all over the world in the same show on a regular basis. And it's just assumed it's normal. Uh, it doesn't feel strange or weird. You just have to make sure you all are compatible time zone wise. And then you go from there. 
And one of the things that happened early on in the pandemic was my theater does like a competitive short form show called Maestro. It's the Keith Johnson format. We opened that casting up to people internationally. And the people that jumped on it the quickest were from Bangalore, India, improv comedy, Bangalore. Their time zone difference from us is ridiculous. (laughs) So we were doing a show at 10 p.m. our time and they're getting up at 6 a.m. their time to be in the show. And they did it over and over and over again. So it would be like, yeah, there's six people from Austin, one guy from Rhode Island, two people from LA, and three people from Bangalore, India. No way. And not only that, but I didn't know anything about the Indian improv scene. And they're amazing improvisers. And I've learned so much kind of just watching them perform. And more importantly, like their enthusiasm and willingness. Like I wouldn't get up at 6 a.m. to be in someone else's (laughs) show, but they did it. They did it and are doing it consistently. I love that. I love it so much. That's commitment. It is. It is. Bala and Lakshmi are two of the people that I've interacted with the most from Bangalore. And they're so, they're so good, y'all. So yeah, it would be, it would be a crime if virtual improv withered on the vine at this point, because we have so much to learn from the international community and you're always you always kind of want that cross cultural pollination, and this you kind of get it for free uh, as long as you're willing to like shut up every once in a while and and not drive all, every scene you're in. You know? <laughs> That's such a beautiful point, and it reminds me of we're we're currently participating in a thing that socially distant improv and high wire improv are putting on. It's like a March Madness bracket improv mm-hmm. thing, and I I love talking to my father in law about improv because he has such the, this view on life where he is really good at marveling at, at things that I take for granted. Yeah. You know, even improv itself, he came to see an improv show and he was like, so you guys don't know what you're going to do before? Like nothing. And he's so excited about it. It reminds me of, of, of what I love about it, but I was telling him about this bracket thing and he was so excited. He's like, so you're like improvising with people from all over the country. And I'm like, yeah. And it, it just reminded me of like, Oh, that is, something that's really special and shouldn't be taken for mm-hmm. granted. So I'm with you. I hope I hope we all keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, me too. And like some actual practical things I've learned about Zoom improv, which I think is the other thing you're asking. I would say to any improviser listening, if you haven't done it or you have fears about it, or you just think like it's not the same or it's sad. I mean, maybe, but, <laughs> but I would say after you do three shows, it feels the same. I don't know, not the same. But it feels very natural and it feels like improv and you can connect with people. It's not this weird thing where you're kind of pretending to do a show. No, you're actually doing a show. It just takes a, it just takes like three shows to adjust your energy level. Now, when we first started doing it, we thought that all of our shows would be set like either in Zoom meetings or like teleconference uh, environments because we thought it was a step too far to ask the audience to like watch us in a Zoom call do an improvised like Jane Austen story, <laughs> but like after four after three shows we were like, eh, I'm tired of that, and now we, <laughs> you know, and now we do it all, and it was totally fine, and it was just wanting to control things and let fear get in the way. Uh, that made us think that we had to do that. Well, we're all laughing because our Zoom improv arc was basically exactly the same. Our first couple of shows yeah. were scenes with people over Zoom. And then yeah. eventually, without even talking about it, eventually that sort of fell away. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I would say is that, uh, and this your mileage may vary, this is just our filter, but we decided that 
miming and space work don't work as well over Zoom. Or rather, holding physical objects works way better over Zoom than it does in person. And I know this is an audio podcast, so I'll try not to use too much of an example. But imagine I'm holding like a marker and a big Sharpie in my hand. I might use that as a knife in a scene, even though it's like patently not a knife. But there's something better to me about holding the Sharpie and threatening someone up at the camera than like miming it over over video. Whereas in you know in person, I would definitely do space work and mime work to be holding a knife. That was just that's what's ring ring true for us. So we use way more props. Literally whatever's lying around my desk. Uh, whenever we do virtual improv. Do you prep your desk with like a variety of things? Yeah, not as much any anymore as we as senioritis has set in. But yeah, I have a, like a little owl figurine and various hats I just kind of throw on the bed next to my uh, desk <laughs> setup. Uh, the other thing that I, that I really love to do is to like draw stuff during a show. Like someone's being chased by a bear I'll just like while improvising the scene, draw draw a bear on a piece of paper, and then uh, that's my favorite. And then hold it up to the camera. It's the it's the best. Oh, that's great! Again, audio, but I'm holding a picture of a, a crude crude velociraptor head from our <laughs> Jurassic World takeoff, and I have like giraffes and bears and seahorses, mostly animals, I guess. Anyway, I wouldn't say that's like a core Zoom improv skill, but it is something. It's fun. What it does point to is find the things that are unique about the medium and like really revel in doing them. And that's something I can do over Zoom that I can't do in person. I mean, I could draw something on a piece of paper in person, but it wouldn't have the same effect. <laughs> okay, so I've got a question backing up to P-Graph. Since we, Storm Chaser, are, we're at about seven and a half years of being together now. Mm-hmm. And... Seeing that y'all have been together for 16 years, it just, that seems impossible. That seems absolutely impossible to me right now. But what advice would you have given a young P-graph of seven and a half years? (laughs) I don't know that there's any advice. I think by seven and a half years, we found our rhythm. If you've been together seven and a half years, I imagine you have too. So now you're going to keep doing it as long as you like love it and love each other. Yeah, love it, love each other. Casey loves to say, hang on tightly, let go lightly. I think that's a good, like, just life philosophy. It can be hugely useful both within shows and both, like, in the decisions you make as a group to, like, be really passionate about your ideas or your inspiration. But, like, if the if things take a turn another way, you know, just, like, give yourself grace and just like let just let it go let go lightly you know <laughs> yeah I, w- I have way more advice for baby p graph the biggest danger we had of not long lasting was the first three years i feel like once we got past the three-year mark we found our connection maybe talk about boundaries whenever you travel together as a group and like what you're hoping to get out of the trip the most dangerous time for our group was early on traveling as a group together. That being said, we've somehow figured out how to spend a month together at the Edinburgh Fringe. So we definitely like cracked that nut or at least learned to tolerate each other. I don't know. Learn how to communicate with each other openly and without ego. I don't know that we're perfect at it at all. But like early on, like literally, if we weren't happy with the way a show was ending, ended, 
we would go out into the catwalk and like someone might storm off or throw some papers, you know, and it seems so silly. It's like we didn't pretend good enough. <laughs> but we were so we so wanted to be amazing and it took us so long to get to the point. You know, it's the Ira Glass thing. It's the like you're aware of your shortcomings long before you are you can like overcome them, which <laughs> <laughs> which is really frustrating if you have ambitious and you want to be in, in the long haul. And we didn't have a map for doing narrative. So what would often happen is we'd have a pretty fun show and then the ending would fall apart completely. And we'd leave with this bad feeling like we couldn't do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's so relatable. Thinking back to our early days, I'm like, oh, man, like that is it's all ringing so true. But yeah, if you're at seven and a half years, I think you're good. Fantastic. Guys. Don't, that's going to I'm going to we're, we're going to get jinx ourselves. <laughs> we're good now. Man. Wait, has your yeah. does your lineup change on the regular or has it been the same? We started with six, but it's been us yeah. three for a long time now. Yeah. Great. Yeah, you're golden then. I don't know. I don't have any advice for groups that change membership rapidly. And I will say that like we never expected to last 16 years and we never expected to be one of the oldest improv troops in Austin. It just people kept forming and breaking up and we kept not. And here we are, you know, I want to ask a little bit about the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. What is that process? Because I think for the unacquainted to the Edinburgh, especially in L.A., the clown comedy community has started to be getting more and more into that uh, community. But mm -hmm. the improv world still really doesn't, I think, know what it is. And it always, when I saw y'all going through it, it seemed like such a big thing. I was like, oh my God, they're going to Edinburgh. It's interesting. It's the largest arts festival in the world. So give you like some, uh, some context. And it's a lot, a lot of theater and a lot of stand up and a lot of one person shows, which isn't, which is much more of a thing in the UK than it is in the US. Yeah, it's kind of got a South by Southwest vibe in that there's everything is massively sponsored and anything that can possibly be a venue is a venue. And there's shows and plays and stand up specials and music uh, happening from like 10 a.m. on to like 2 a.m., you know, so everywhere. And there's a, there's a stretch of street called the Royal Mile where you do most of your flyering. It's the kind of deal where if you're not performing, you're flyering for your show and you're competing with thousands of other people who are also flyering for their show. And you're lucky if you have like five audience members at your show. It's total slog, but in the UK, it can make careers it's it almost wasn't a choice for our friends in the uk august rolls around and everyone goes to edinburgh and does multiple shows and they're like just hoping that like they get a good review in the scotsman and get picked up or they get some notoriety and it's it's happened for some improv groups there uh ostentatious does improvise jane austen is one of the biggest groups in the uk and they have shows on bbc radio and, you know, uh, Showstoppers, the improvised musical plays the West End on the regular basis. And all of that came out of like doing shows in Edinburgh. But it's a total gamble and you spend a lot of money and you sleep. We got a flat, the four of us. Actually, we had a Kickstarter. And if you if you gave us, I don't remember what it was like. Let's say if you gave us a thousand dollars, you had the you could come with us to Edinburgh and do our tech. <laughs> <laughs> and Mitchell Dean, God bless him, did it. 
and he came with us. So it was the five of us in this flat. And literally, we had four beds in a room, and I slept on the floor <laughs> for the entire <laughs> month. Wow. And we were on the ba- the ground floor, kind of basement-y floor of this like multi-level building. And right outside of our door is where everyone put their trash. And we had the worst mouse infestation for the entire month. And keep in mind, I was sleeping on the floor. floor. (laughs) Oh no. That Mitchell Mitchell killed a mouse with a microwave, not in the way you think. He smashed he smashed it with a microwave on accident. Casey killed a mouse with a fire hydrant, very much on purpose. Oh (laughs) oh my god. It was in her suitcase. It had it coming. And um it sounds so glamorous. It's uh, you know, it's got that like punk rock glam. It's like when we were younger and we we were a troop and we it was us against the world. The stories we could tell. But the thing about that trip was that we always had an audience and we did a show every night. And I don't know if you've ever had that got to have that experience, your group doing a show every night. It fucking rules. Yeah, uh, because you like you do a show, you feel a little bit weird about it. You spend all day flyering, and then you go do the show, the show again, and you it's a new chance to like impress a new audience and to kind of retool. We were so stupid, and we decided to do five different genres every night. So Mondays we would do like French farce, and then the next night we would do 1940s screwball comedy. Then we do Grimm's fairy tales. Then we do a show called Villainy, where we tell dark stories of villainy. And then, like, Saturday was, like, wild card, you know? But that's a terrible idea if you're trying to pitch your show to somebody walking past you on the Royal Mile. (laughs) It's a different show every night. You just kind of kind of pick the night you want to come. But we always did it. We always had shows. We never got that review in The Scotsman that we wanted. We did get some, like, audience reviews on, like, the sites that kind of aggregate those things. And it was great. Like, one of the best ones was, like, I normally wouldn't touch Impro with a 10-foot pole. Uh, but I made a promise that I would go to the first show I was handed a flyer for, and they were it, and it was amazing, and it was the it spoiled us for the rest of the festival, you know. Aww. And I was like, "Oh, it's so good!" But towards the end of the festival, UK improvisers started coming to see our shows, and some of them uh, came out for multiple nights, and they inevitably they would stick around after the show and be like, "You want to get a drink?" And we would get a drink, and that is where the payoff came. So it turned into this beautiful friendship. And ultimately, friendship with the whole London improv scene. So the next year, we didn't go back to Edinburgh. We went to London. We taught a five-day intensive. And we just started going back. And uh, I play VR with a UK improviser every Saturday. We played we played mini golf on a space station this past Saturday. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Me and Chris Mead. I love it. I love it. That's the key here, the... Takeaway for me is stick around after the end of the show. Hang out, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, that was where we solidified things. Because, you know, it was very similar at the time. It's not that way in London anymore. They didn't have, like, a strong narrative tradition or scene. So they would see our show, and they would have a thousand questions. And we had a thousand questions about their scene. And so we would we'd have a pint and, and talk it out, you know? Do you ever sit and reflect on... Because I'm listening to these stories and knowing your history, obviously, you have had a big impact on the Austin improv community. But also, 
you've had an impact on the worldwide community. Like the improv scene of the world is different because of you and P-Graph. Like, do you ever sit and reflect on that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, do you ever get a cup of do you ever get a cup of tea and put on a record and just reflect about how much of an impact you've made on the world? I I do and we do reflect on that. Therein madness lies. So it's too it's hard to like think too hard about it because the the kind of thing I've moved to is that like I think we should all be massive influences on each other and inspire each other. But, you know, that might be kind of hand-waving. It was literally like one of the guys we met at Edinburgh, he was giving up on improv and then he saw our show and decided not to. And then he opened up an improv theater in Bristol and it was literally the first pure improv theater in the UK, you know? And it's like, and it's hard not to see something like that and be like, you know, we had something to do with that happening. And we can't take credit for the amazing improv that theater puts out now. But we can take a little bit of we can take a little bit of pride in knowing that like we influenced this guy to start the theater and not only to do that, but to kind of focus on narrative and genre. And you know, we came over and taught some workshops and that I think when we went when we visited, their Wi-Fi password was like the address of the hideout. And I was like No way. I was like, I hope you just change the password for this. I hope you change it every week, you know? But I never, I couldn't, I couldn't bear to ask because I was afraid the answer was no. It's been that way for the past two years. <laughs> I got chills. That's so beautiful. Yeah, that's so. It's just so lovely. Thanks for giving us pish. <laughs> <laughs> if you could send like an emergency alert to every improviser's phone in the world, you had that power. What would you? What message would you send to everybody? Oh my God. Is this improv advice or what is it? Yeah, advice for improvisers. Ad okay. Yeah, it would just go to improvisers though. Okay. I mean, because like if I'm just sending a general message, I'd be like, universal healthcare now, make it a priority. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there's like a, probably a billion things that are more important than how to do improv. But if we want to narrow the focus a bit, so, you know, I'd say, I don't know, slow down, be, be slow down and be vaguely positive would be my my general advice. I really like that, actually. Slow down. Be vaguely positive. That's great. So I don't know what you got out of the book, but that's that's like these days, that's like 90% of what we're telling people in workshops, especially when you're doing narrative, is spend most of your time on the once upon a time and every day part of your story. What's the world like? Who are the characters? How do they relate to each other? And kind of don't worry about the conflict or the until one day part of the story until you have a good sense of that world. And so often that means trusting yourself and your your group enough to slow down and just enjoy that beginning and trust that it's interesting to the audience because it absolutely is. And if you speed through that, that's that that why uh, spoiler alert, not spoiler alert, uh, big reveal or something. That's why our all of our P-Graph shows fell apart at the ending. We never learned how to do a good ending. We learned how to do a good beginning. Once we had a, once we were comfortable enough creating a solid foundation, then the then the story could end successfully and happen successfully. Have you read the book Invisible Ink? No, I haven't. Okay. A couple of things that you said during this interview, I was like, this sounds like that book. It's very good. I think it might interest you because it's like your wavelength for sure. What's it uh what's it about? 
It's about storytelling. I believe it has a focus on screenwriting. Our coach, our first coach, Jet, gave it to me and suggested reading for us early on, which is funny because we weren't like learning narrative. But so much of what you've said about storytelling, I feel like gets tackled in that book in a very compelling way. Jet, Jet Eveleth, I assume? Yes. Yeah. I listened to a little bit of Jet's interview before with, with y'all and everything Jet said, I was like, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> Is there anything, Roy, that you like want to soapbox about for a minute? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> no pressure. You don't have to. We just want to, if there's anything you want to get off your I chest. I already did a tiny bit. And I will say that like, if, if I slammed anybody or any groups, it was out of love, you know, love and admiration and fully aware that like we all have blind spots and things that we need to work on and be better about. I didn't do that much so, but I always, always worry about that after the fact. <laughs> I mean, I just want to soapbox again about the things we already kind of ranted at, which is narrative absolutely has a place in improv. And I don't think it's the one thing that you should only do in improv. I happen to really love it and to think a lot about it. I think trying to wave it away as something that you get for free or you actively shouldn't think about does it a disservice because I I have learned that it's actually very, very fun and freeing to be on the side in the moment and go like, I know the perfect thing that should happen in this story right now. And not to be like, I got to come on stage as a character and have and be a totally blank slate and then make something happen and to view it as cheating because like, all of our inspiration kind of comes from the same place. And there's a really wonderful book by uh, a lady named Carol Hazenfield. It's called Acting on Impulse. It's my favorite improv book. I guess second favorite now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's really wonderful. Uh, and she touches on all this stuff in terms of like, really when you're improvising a narrative, you're acting on following your feet. Like your body often knows what the next move is before your head does. And that's not exclusive to narrative. But I think people, if they think about improvising a narrative, might think, oh, it's really hard. I don't want to be in my head about like story structure or, you know, what the what the when the mentor needs to come in or when the mentor needs to die, all that stuff. But honestly, like in the moment, it can be just as playful and moment to moment and inspiration and inspiration driven as any other long form show. And so, yeah, I think it's really fun and freeing. And then to just completely pivot, the other thing I wanna ramble about because I haven't talked about it yet and that I really love to talk about, you should never feel stuck in an improv show and you should never feel confused in an improv show. An early trap that people doing narrative, but maybe all types of improv experience is that they're in the middle of a scene they have no idea what the fuck is going on and they don't know what to do about it. And we have come to hate that so that feeling so much that my advice now is to crash through as many real, uh, levels of reality as you need to in order to get unstuck. Keygraph over time has gotten both lazier, but I think in the best way possible in that like if I don't know someone's name, I will pause the show and just be like, wait. If you are you playing uh, Lauren right now? And they'll be like, yeah, I'm, your, I'm playing your sister, Lauren. And be like, OK, good. And then I'll just unpause the show and we'll continue <laughs> rather than me trying to improvise the scene in the story where I'm not sure whether someone's playing, whether Valerie's playing like my mother or my sister in the scene. And names, as you all know, are impossible to remember in improv. 
And if you're doing a narrative, your problem has been multiplied. We've done entire shows where no one could remember the main character's name. And we danced around it for an hour and a half because everyone was too afraid to like ask. And now a lot of times I'll just be like, um, glad to see you, Mr. And I'll literally like do that. And the audience will yell out their name because the audience are fucking geniuses and they know everything that's happening at every moment. And so they know what the character's name is. So why not lean on them to tell you? And the thing about all that is the audience doesn't care. That's the most freeing thing about all this. You know, there's a part of the book where I talk about being clunky and clear is better than like smooth and obscure. And all I mean by that is if you've got some details you want to spell out, like fucking spell them out. Every narrative improv show is a pilot episode of a TV show. So the audience is learning the information the same time you're creating it. And even worse, you have no props usually or setting or any or like a pre-show scroll of text. So like you have to get out all that information. Uh, The audience will not remember that you said like, as your brother, I am glad to be here in your gazebo, you know? Like they'll forgive you immediately and they won't remember that that line was clunky and they'll be happy that uh, we're all on the same page later on. That was like five rants all in one. That's These are like everything I would say to a, a class in a three hour workshop condensed into uh, five minutes. It's perfect. We owe you $500. Yeah. <laughs> the book, I just, I don't think we've said it yet. The book is called Do It Now, uh, Essays yeah. on Narrative Improv. It's very good. I think the highest compliment personally i can give is knowing my previous feelings about narrative improv is after i read it i was like oh i want to do narrative improv like <laughs> you made it sound approachable and understandable and fun and yeah. also it also just resonated with a lot of what i believe about right like Im- regular improv whatever that means mm-hmm. and i so i was i would recommend it to everyone even you know curmudgeons like myself who might not think they have an interest in narrative improv it's it's a very good book i really really enjoyed it you also forgot its most salient feature which is that it's short <laughs> yes uh it's, it's, I think it's, it's a, written for the improviser's attention span <laughs> yeah yeah it's a series of short essays which are basically like the things that at the time were the most important to us and we just wanted to to get out there actually the real the real reason is that we sat down to write a 400 page book and it languished for like six months and then we were like the only way we're gonna actually do this thing is if we just write the bits that we're excited about you know we didn't we couldn't we couldn't fake enthusiasm so we were like let's each just write a thing we really know and are passionate about and let's put it together and let's put it out that way and we we definitely have like a part two in the works but that'll come in its own time and then so my thought is that maybe in 20 years There'll be four parts and we can put them together and that'll be the 400 page book we originally wanted to write. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Is I there anything that. else you want to plug Roy your social media, anything else you want to get out there? Yeah. Not for me personally, but I would say go to pgraph.com. It's our parallelogram of phonographs website. Go, you can get the book there for, for instance, and then go to hideouttheater.com. We are actively teaching uh, workshops virtually online, both for uh, adults and kids and we do corporate work which has a separate website hideoutatwork.com and you know we're not that far off from being in person again too so we're going to start doing some outdoor classes which we've experimented with throughout the pandemic and then once austin goes down to stage two i think we'll be doing in-person classes and then 
once we're at stage one, we'll, we're going to open it all back up again. So anywhere in the world you are, you can go to hideouttheater.com and take some virtual workshops. Wonderful. I also just, if I didn't say it already, the Hideout Theater is such a great space. Oh, I really, thank you. Really, I've only been there um, that one time, but I, we really enjoyed it and it's lovely. Thank you so much. And Travis, thank you for your words about the book. That meant a lot to me. It was touch and go during the pandemic. We've somehow managed to stretch and are going to, our doors will remain open, at knock on wood. Good. But we also got new landlords halfway through too. Like the building had been owned by the same family since the 1800s. <gasps> and during the pandemic, they decided to sell it. So we had no idea what was going to happen oh. to it. But the guy who bought it wants to keep us in there. He he likes having us in there. So he's committed to keeping us there. So thank God, because it, it was a roll of the dice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Roy. Oh, it's so much fun. Every time something like this comes up, I'm like, how are we going to fill an hour and a half or two hours? And then I'm like, I not only talked the entire time, but I have so much more to say. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We literally couldn't get you to stop talking. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I think think we would gladly have you back. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was wonderful. I learned so much and there's so many gold nuggets in there. Also, we it's less work for us if you if like you have opinions. I love it. (laughs) It's so great. Yeah. Yeah. Nailed it, guys. Great. I think that's about it. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. If you want to connect with Roy, you can find him on Instagram at Roy Yannick. That's R-O-Y-J-A-N-I-K. And you can find more about PGraph on their website, www.pgraph.com, where you can also order a copy of their book called Do It Now, Essays on Narrative Improv. Y'all, I just read it, and it is jam-packed full of great insights to take into your improv. Also, if you're in Austin, Texas, when the world opens back up, please check out the Hideout Theater downtown. It's the place where I started improvising, and I couldn't recommend it enough. The Hideout also has a Twitch channel at twitch.tv backslash hideouttheater, where you can see Roy as well as a bunch of other hilarious improvisers perform. You can also see Storm Chaser perform live on facebook.com backslash Storm Chaser Improv. For showtimes and other fun bits from the podcast, connect with us on Instagram at Storm Chaser Improv. And before you go, if you've enjoyed the podcast, could you please leave us a bright, glowing, eloquent review on Apple Podcasts? We'd really appreciate it. And that's all I got. Get out of here while you still can before I sell you on my new pyramid scheme. Thank you for listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show.